Hey, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time. I saw your video. You came out with it on May 31st. You with your friend David Jones. He was, you know, just recorded. The video went viral, you know, and it is what it is today. I watched it over 100 times. I've cried. I've shared it with everybody <laughs> I know. <laughs> Got me in tears, man. You know, we, we were talking before this, that you, you truly have a voice that roars, that I believe we'll see ripple effects for generations. And when you speak, I believe people listen. I believe it's an anointing from God over your life. I know it wasn't rehearsed. I've seen you say it wasn't practiced. Mm -mm. It just came out of your heart. And so where does that heart come from? Um, if you would share with everybody watching on YouTube and listening on podcasts, where do you get that heart from? Um, I think I get it from my mother and my grandmother. Um, my mother and my grandmother, you know, my grandmother was a preacher. My grandma, my, my grandmother was a preacher. My mother is a preacher. And so they have just, both of them always had like a passion for people. Um, even in my mother, in her, in her daily work, she worked in corporate America for a long time. And then she just re realized that that really wasn't you know, what God wanted her to do. And so she switched over and she started doing more community-based work. Um, she ran after-school programs and mentorship programs and um, child care services. And she worked in foster care. And she really just was a person who always cared. My mother was a person, if you like got kicked out of your house, you could come stay at our house. And my grandmother was the exact same way. Um, so I just, being raised by those two women I think I just I just stand on their shoulders and and try to continue that, that legacy. Amen, amen. Now you're from Chicago. You live in Atlanta. Your mother was an activist. You spent lots of time with the Rainbow Coalition and pushed with Reverend Barrow. And she spoke a word that changed your life on economics. And how has that word and your mother shaped your life into what you do today? It's funny because Reverend Willie T. Barrow, who she's one of the founding members of Operation Push, that speech was given to me by an amazing teacher that I had. Um, I was going to Operation Push for after school programs. And so a teacher that I had had a, had a transcript of a, a, a sermon that Reverend Barrow had given um, my teacher, Miss Lumpkin, who's amazing. And um, she knew that I was an oratory learner, um, which, you know, a lot of teachers weren't really equipped with those skills to really decipher how kids learn and how to teach kids. And then, and I, I um, you know, I'm open about the fact that I have a, you know, a behavioral disorder. I have ADHD and I didn't get diagnosed until I was an adult. So this is not a diagnosis that I had in school. I just had this really amazing teacher that was like, if I allow Kim to do her assignments and, and give information orally, she, she's one of the smartest kids in the class. But if I make her sit and try to write it, that's when she struggles. And so she would give me a lot of like oral assignments um, to get me through school. And so over time, one of the things she started doing was like, putting me in oratory competitions. And so she gave me that speech from Reverend Barrow um, to do in a, in a competition. So that was maybe when I was like 12 and I've carried that speech with me my whole life. Um, and I've carried the sentiment of that speech with me my whole life. And it was a, com you know, a conversation on the economics of slavery and how it continues to affect African-Americans to this day, which was not a popular conversation when she, um, you know, when she gave it 30 years ago. Um, she was definitely, Reverend Barrow was definitely ahead of her time. And so, and, and in terms of my mother, my mother just always nurtured that in me. So once my mother realized that speaking was my strong suit, she like 
put me in acting classes and theater programs and all of that stuff, which over time I realized that like being in front of the camera on the stage wasn't really my thing. Um, but it, but it led me to writing, um, which is, you know, led me to writing and directing. And so I just, I was just blessed to have very strong black female influences growing up that all played their part in, in shaping who I am. You mentioned that, uh, you know, speaking and all that wasn't really your forte. You were more directing all these things. You also lead in cleanup projects. You spoke even one time of only four people that showed up to a neighborhood cleanup uh, mm -hmm. project and doing the behind the scenes things. And then you speak this video that goes absolute viral and it's all over the place, as we mentioned before. But you were there doing behind the scene things and this is what came forward. I wonder for somebody watching or somebody listening right now that feels like they don't have a big enough stage. They're doing the behind the scenes things. They just lead a neighborhood cleanups. They're protesting, they're doing things and they feel like that could never be me. Why don't you speak to them? Somebody right now, maybe a, a young lady who's watching or a young man who's listening and they feel that they're from a place where they, they will never have a platform that you have. And speak to them about honoring, being faithful with the small things and how they open up the door for bigger things. Yeah, you should definitely be faithful for, with that because, you know, I've been at this a very, very long time. It's funny. I take it as a huge compliment. People think I'm like a millennial, but I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I think I'm older than people realize I am. So I've, I've been on this path and this mission uh, uh, for, for a very long time. And so to now have this platform is definitely a blessing um, because it allows me to get my message out and, you know, in a much, um, you know, in a much broader way. But, um, you know, don't, don't underestimate the small things because you may not you may not be the person that has the global microphone, but you may be the catalyst for the person who gets it. Because when I think about all the women and all the people along the way who encouraged me, who influenced me, who informed my, my view of the world, like they are just as important, if not more, than myself and what I'm doing. I'm just echoing, I'm just the echo chamber for all of those people, for the teachers, for the church members, for the community leaders. Um, I'll never forget there was um, the neighborhood that I lived in in Chicago was the 34th Ward and our alderman, Alderman Lemuel Austin, um, had all these programs where he engaged the youth so they were involved in what was happening in community and in their district. And he started like a cheerleading team. Um, uh, named after him, the Alderman Lemuel Austin cheerleaders. And we were his cheerleaders and we would like, we were like 10 and we would like go to events with him and like cheer before rally with him and stuff like that. But then we would be there in that space, listening to him deliver speeches, listening to him talk about policy, um, you know, getting all this information and, and many of us are involved in the community or have a sense of activism or you know community organizing and, and things like that and it's because it's because of him so it's like just stay faithful and if god has a larger platform for you trust that it's coming but even if he doesn't that doesn't mean that you don't impact the world that doesn't mean that your message doesn't speak to the person who's going to change the world um i think about you know President Obama saying that the reason that he came to Chicago and even started his journey was because he saw Harold Washington 
um, become the first black mayor of Chicago, but Harold Washington becomes the first black mayor of Chicago because of an, an initiative, a unifying initiative um, by a, a community organizer named Rudy Lozano. So, you know, President, Ob you know, Rudy Lozano never met President Obama. He died, you know, in the 80s or whatever, but it's like no Rudy, no Harold, no Obama. And that's the through line. So you may be the Rudy in someone's life. Wow. Wow, that's so good. You have such a uh, uh, anointing to be able to take uh, difficult truths and make them simple and communicate it in a special way. You often speak of how growth comes from discomfort. Mm -hmm. Talked about how this was such a, just a timely thing, how it, it, everything came about at the end of a pandemic and people yeah. were forced to watch it and be faced with their own discomfort and even their own reality of racism even in their own hearts. And they were seeing what people have seen for generations, for over 400 years. And now people seeing even a greater pandemic, which is racism and how, you know, yeah. the same way you treat in COVID, you need to treat racism. Just assume that everybody has it and do everything in your power to change it. And yeah. so talk to us about, about how people had to, what people were faced with um, when everything started coming out and, 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 and what do you think about all that? The, the most beautiful part about that sentiment is that that is a conversation that me and my co-author Geely talk about all the time. I have to give props to my sister. Um, that is that is that is her statement. I can't take credit for that. She says that growth comes from discomfort. I just borrow. She allows me to borrow it from her. Um, and it's interesting because um, Geely and I write young adult novels together, and obviously I'm black and she's white, and so we had to have difficult conversations. We had to grow from discomfort, um, but we always did it in a way um, that we honored our friendship first, um, and so. You know that sentiment comes from her because she talks about how she had to be had to sit and grapple with her discomfort on implicit bias that she didn't even realize that she had. You know, and so she always says that she um, she wants people to understand that that woke is a journey and not a destination because she's like she thought she had arrived at woke and like she was you know she didn't have implicit bias and she was teaching her kids to be anti-racist and she didn't realize you know how much implicit bias existed even in her own life until she and i had to sit down and grapple with racism to write these books together and so i think that what happened with the pandemic is like the world had to do that for the first time and so by people being so still and then keep in mind that george floyd video that that eight minutes and 46 seconds I mean, it's brutal to watch. It's brutal to watch. And, and most people with any level of empathy or humanity watch that and are, you know, if they haven't really paid attention to any other video, this video happened during a pandemic where you were still and it was in your face and you didn't have soccer to drop the kids off to and you know, church meetings or wherever it is that you have to go to distract you from it. And it's hard to watch. It's brutal. And so people sitting still and seeing that fo forced them to live in the discomfort of it. And it forced people for the first time to be like, okay, I don't know how I wasn't getting this before, but now I'm getting it. Yeah, man. So, so powerful. Um, speaking of Gilly, you, you, guys co-wrote a book called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. It focuses mm -hmm. on the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death and two 17-year-old girls. And for those who don't know about the book, I wonder if you can just share with us a little bit about the book and where they can get it from. 
Yeah, so the book is called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. It's about two 17-year-old girls who survived the night and raced riots together. One is black and one is white. And the book is told in alternating chapters. So you get a Lena chapter, who's the black girl, and then a Campbell chapter, who's the white girl. And you get to see how differently they see tonight because of their their lived experience, but also because they're both female, um, you get to see how why they're able to come together. Um, it's that omnipresent threat to the female form that that forces them, that lets them know that they're safer to survive the night if they stick together and if they work together in order um, to get home. And even though the book is set in Atlanta, it was inspired by the unrest in Baltimore after Freddie Gray because Geely came across this article about a group of kids who got trapped behind a police barricade. And so these are kids who weren't participating in the unrest. They were just stuck out there because they had heard that the unrest was coming. And so they closed down school early and told the kids to, to go home. But the city had also shut down public transportation. And a lot of those kids took public transportation to get home. So they had no way to get home. So they were just stuck out there. And so Gila and I did all this research trying to find out where those kids were and what happened to those kids. And we couldn't. And, you know, we were just like, what happened to those kids? Like, we're just, we're both moms. So we're super concerned and was like, what happened to those kids? And so, you know, writing is a way that we process information. So Geely came to me and was like, hey, I have this idea for the, a book. Tell me what you think. And I agreed to it. And that was in 2015. And, and now last year it came out and it's a New York Times bestseller and they're making a movie out of it. And like all this stuff has happened. Um, but I think that the reason people love the book so much and, and appreciate and keep in mind, and this is why I always try to encourage people, um, you know, we all say, you know, weapon, uh, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I think the part that people aren't paying attention to when they hear that is, oh, the weapons will be formed. <laughs> They'll be formed. It's not that the weapons aren't coming and they just won't prosper <laughs> um, because it was, it, I mean, the critics were not a fan of this book. They did not, they did not like it, but the people liked it and the people loved it and kids were attracted to us. And we, and we started getting emails from teachers saying, I haven't been able to get my kids my students to read anything and they all read this in a book and they, in a week and they started their own book clubs and they're centered around it. And I think because of the raw honesty in which Geely and I tried to tell the story and, and, and the beauty of seeing, right, like two women, one black and white, come together to tell this story about two kids, one black and white, and, and the, you know, the unification of that was something that the world was ready for. And now we have other books that we're writing together, so. Even kids from Ferguson were received the blessing from that and impacted their lives. I love that word, unity. I think the definition is in the word, you and I tie. And mm -hmm. beautiful picture, you and Gilly, y'all are tied hand in hand, heart in heart. And that's why y'all are so effective together, I believe. And so it's so awesome. You gave, yeah. one the world, you gave the world one of the best illustrations, you know, I mean, Monopoly. And, and you helped break it down to its simplest form. For those who did not watch the video, for those who don't know what we're talking about, share with us a little bit about the economics and about the game Monopoly in general. Yeah, so I... It's funny because I, I had never, that's why I always say it must have been God that stepped in in that speech because I had never framed it in that way before. That just was like 
spur of the moment off the top of my head, but I had used it before. There's a, a nonprofit organization that I volunteer with um, called the Girls Who Brunch Tour. And that is, I taught a class on wealth building um, to teenage girls as a workshop. And I use Monopoly as my basis to teach them how important it is to, to, to own lands and how real estate can be used as a tool to build, to build wealth. And so it, it was like, you know, flirting in the back of my mind because of that workshop. But again, I had never framed it in the way in which I did in that video, but I think it's a great illustration because Monopoly is a game that's universal. You know, everybody has played it and they know how the game is. And Monopoly is also a game that gets people high hyper emotional like people get in huge fights about games of monopoly and like take it very seriously and you know um and it's a long game right you started at like six o'clock and at midnight you're just wrapping up the monopoly game or whatever but um i thought it was a great way to explain how when people aren't allowed to build generational wealth the effect that that can have not only on the wealth itself but but uh, financial financial literacy so if you have a community like the african american community that you know for for 246 years was not allowed to have any, not, not even just allowed to build wealth, like not allowed really to have money at all. And then you just say, okay, you know, now pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's going to be very difficult to do, do that um, when you're starting so far behind your, your counterparts. And so a lot of times when I'm having these conversations about restitution or reparations and, and how we need to like, you know, come up with some type of plan that helps build economic wealth, for, you know, Black people, there's a lot of pushback of, well, that happened so long ago, um, that's, that, that is, has nothing to do with the people who are living now. And I'm like, but it does have a residual, it, there's a residual effect from what happened um, so long ago. And so it's like, um, there's this funny video that's been circulating with Chris Rock talking about you do have black people in this country that are rich, but you don't have any that have real wealth. Like he he made a joke that said like if one of the if Bill Gates or one of the Rockefellers woke up and they had Oprah's money, they would be really sad, you know. And because it's a it's a whole, it's a totally different level because wealth is generational, and you know a lot of people that you see that are rich now they're first generation rich. Um, that that type of income, and even still with that, like 90% of America's wealth is, you know, owned by white Americans, and only 2.6% of America's wealth is owned by Black Americans. So that's a huge difference. Um, that's a huge, huge difference, and a, and a big part of that is just um, a lot of systemic racism that has basically like monopoly not allowed us to play the game because even when you get out of what happened with slavery and you look at times like re, you know reconstruction and jim crow there was there were laws on the book that prevented black people from growing generational wealth and so when you look at you know the situation that we're in now and people are like well now people can figure it out yeah you can figure it out if you're a super exceptional human being like Oprah, but if you're the average person living in Compton or Bankhead or one of those places, there's lots of still like redlining that doesn't allow you access to good education, to um, to decent home, to, you know, acceptable home loans. Um, you know, there's a lot of economic disparagements. If you live in a poor neighborhood that's considered high risk, then you pay higher for everything. So you pay higher car insurance, you pay higher home insurance. And it's like, you're asking people to pay more when they clearly have less. So there are a lot of, you know, systemic issues that we need to 
face that that have kept African Americans economically disadvantaged. And and that's all I was trying to illustrate with my Monopoly game is that even though theoretically, yes, these you know these on the book uh, laws seem so long ago, but they're still affecting the way in which we live now. You're all about action. We have a few minutes left. Last question. This, we don't want this to be just a normal post. We don't want this to be a normal YouTube clip. It's more than a hashtag in your own words. This is more than a post. We want to see change and action take place. For those who are watching on YouTube, those who are listening on a podcast, what can they do? doesn't matter if they're white, black, Spanish. What action steps can they take? in their communities, in their churches, in their own homes. You know, I think of the Bible, it says, Joshua, he says, ask for me and my house. See, the me comes before the my. So before somebody can change a community, they got to look within their own selves. They got to, that change starts in the mirror. So what would you do? What would you say a word of hope to people who are watching or listening now to say, you know what, this is what you can do to start seeing change? Because we we don't want this to be a normal post. It's more than a conversation. Mm -hmm. We need the action take place. Yes, I can say, you know, if you are a person who is not a person of color, the first step is going to be to start to do the work to educate yourself on the actual history, um, because they definitely did not get it, do a good job of teaching us full American history in school. It was definitely like, a, you know, a bias in terms of what we were taught in the educational system. And so the beautiful thing is right now we're living in an era and a time where there are a lot of people who have taken up the charge to say, okay, I'm going to take up the charge to begin to educate people on what you're missing and what you're, you're lost. You know, I'm one of those people. You can come to my Instagram page. I give assignments. I give, you know, historical facts. Um, I give all this information that's open to all um, to learn. There are amazing people like Layla Assad, um, who has a, an amazing book and workbook called Me and White Supremacy. And she put it together for non, you know, non-people of color to get the book, read the book, and then get the workbook and work through their own implicit bias. Um, and then there's people like Sonia Renee Taylor, um, who has her What's, What's Up videos that are, you know, educational and, and you know, educating people about their implicit bias and how to do, deal with that. So there, there's a lot of amazing Black women, if you will, who are out there taking the charge of saying, okay, this is how you educate yourselves. And I think that that is step one because you have to grapple with that before you can be productive and helping in the fight. And I think that once you do that, then you have to look at, and this is not even just an issue of, you know, in, in dealing with the atrocities of the black community, this is Americans as a whole. We have really taken our hand off of our democracy and have forgotten that all those people in Washington and all those people in your state legislator and all of those local politicians that live by you, they work for you. You don't work for them. They work for you. And so if they're not doing the jobs that they're supposed to be doing, then you get to fire them with your vote. And so voting is super important, but it's it's more than just going to the ballot polls and, and voting. It's actually researching the people who are running and understanding where they stand on the issues that affect you and your community, particularly those at the local level, because those are truthfully the laws that affect you the most on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, it doesn't matter what they're doing in New York. I need to know what they're doing here in Georgia. You know what I mean? 
we see that with COVID, like states who opened up too soon are now having an effect. It's not that all of America is having an effect. There are some people who are starting to level out because their leadership did what was necessary to help that along, you know? And so you really have to get involved in your local elections. You really have to get to, and some of y'all are gonna have to run. Some of y'all are gonna have to run so you can be from the community and for the community. And if you are a young woman, there's an amazing organization called Vote Run Lead that grooms young women to, to run for office, that teaches them about bill writing and everything that they will need to know so they can go in there and tackle it. Some of us are gonna have to take up the charge and run for office and like get that stuff done. And then beyond that, we need a better education system. Because if our education system is updated, which is huge we'll be building a new generation with you know we'll be leaving this country to a better group of people if they're if they're properly educated and and when i'm saying education i mean on world store studies on american studies but also why aren't we teaching finance and economics to kids in school you know it's it's crazy across the board that we don't teach that in school that we don't teach kids even as basic as the importance of their credit report they should know that by the time they finish eighth grade and what that looks like and how you build credit. And so we need to completely revamp the educational structure um, because I think there's even a way in that to like nurture and to teach people to empathize with each other. I remember I'll say this last thing um, when I went to Catholic school for a little while, we actually had a class at, at Catholic school that taught us like how to be socially and community involved. And the first segment of that was empathy. And it's like, that should be taught at every school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Proximity breeds empathy. Um, mm -hmm. Distance breeds suspicion. So this needs yeah. to be brought close in the schools needs to be brought close where everybody can feel that and know that. And, Kimberly, yeah. thank you so much. I honor you. I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh, anytime. You are anointed and you are appointed for such a time as this. Your voice, it really, it roars in this world today. And so it is an absolute honor to have you with us. We thank you so very much. I appreciate it. I have to do it because even though I, I'm a Chicago girl, I grew up in Chicago. My dad was from Longleaf, Louisiana. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Louisiana has a special place in my heart. Always, always. Please don't be a stranger. Thank you so much. Thank you.